You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian Geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Padna, joined by Prashant Parmeswaran today, my usual co-host. How's it going, Prashant? Thanks for joining me. Good. How's it going with you? It's going good. It's good to be back uh, soon after our latest podcast looking at Donald Trump's Asia moves. I recommend that listeners check that out if you haven't already. Uh, But today we're going to look at the present and look at the past. And specifically, this podcast is going to focus on U.S. defense policy in Asia, which I know a lot of diplomat readers and hopefully podcast listeners are interested in. Um, And we actually have a really good peg for this podcast, which is uh, uh, outgoing U.S. Secretary of Defense Ash Carter's uh, what will likely be his last trip abroad as Secretary of Defense. In fact, what would almost certainly be his last trip abroad. Um, so Carter has been uh, busy flying around the world on a reassurance tour, essentially. Uh, he's visiting the UK, Italy, Bahrain, Israel, and of interest to us here at The Diplomat, Japan, and India. So we'll mostly focus on those final two pegs in the relationship, because I think there's actually a lot to be said about what the Obama administration has done with those two countries uh, in Obama's second term. Um, Carter himself um, is an interesting character. Uh, He was always a bit of a defense intellectual. Um, Before he became Secretary of Defense, he had a bit of a reputation for speaking truth to power, so it were. He was under Secretary of Defense under uh, Chuck Hagel, his predecessor. And uh, the India angle there is actually interesting since Carter took a specific interest in India, which I think we've seen play out a bit during his tenure as SecDef. Uh, So that'll be the first part of the podcast. We'll talk a bit about Japan and India. Uh, And then we'll just kind of pull back a bit and reflect more broadly on U.S. defense defense policy. Um, So some things obviously didn't go according to plan uh, with Donald Trump's election for the Obama administration, uh, but we'll reflect broadly on the defense component of the pivot. So we'll talk about things like Ash Carter's principled security network concept, and we'll talk a bit more about the nuts and bolts of that in terms of the actual platforms that have been deployed. various defense sales to U.S. allies and partners in the Asia-Pacific. These are all themes that are familiar to listeners of this podcast, but hopefully we'll be able to do one final send-off for Ash Carter this episode. Uh, So Prashant, that all sound good to you? Sounds good. All right. um, So I guess let's kick off with Japan, which is where uh, Carter was first in Asia. So um, the relationship there is obviously fascinating. You have 50,000 U.S. troops in Japan, important ally, treaty ally. And over the past um, four years, Obama has actually had a very willing partner in the form of Shinzo Abe in Japan. So we've seen a range of important developments with relevance to the alliance. Uh, The biggest, I would say, conceptually was the rejigging of the um, bilateral defense guidelines between the United States and Japan which effectively govern how the two allies behave and interoperate in any sort of military contingency, both during peacetime and wartime. Um, So there have been a few changes there, which uh, the Japanese actually augmented with their uh, domestic legislative moves after the Abe cabinet reinterpreted the collective self-defense provisions in Article 9 of Japan's constitution. Article 9, of course, is the famous provision in Japan's constitution that sees the country forgo war, known as its pacifist constitutional clause. Um, With the relaxation of rules on collective self-defense, Japan is able to engage in a few more activities than it had previously been able to. And we actually saw um, our... um, One of the manifestations of that just recently in November when the first Japanese ground self-defense force uh, peacekeeping contingent uh, deployed to South Sudan under a new um, 
rules of engagement rubric that actually allow for the direct use of force in self-defense. Um, so obviously, yeah, there's a there's a lot going on, and the security context here is interesting. So obviously, we have the big picture issue, which is the rise of China and ongoing tensions between Japan and China in the East China Sea, which had pretty much been a fixture of the Obama administration's second term in office, uh, with tensions really heating up after 2012 when the Japanese government decided to nationalize the disputed Senkaku Diaoyu Islands in the East China Sea to prevent their acquisition by the nationalist mayor of Tokyo, Shintaro Ishihara. Um, so, you know, there's obviously a lot going on this front. But with Carter's visit, I think um, what's interesting to reflect on is, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, it's all about reassurance. With uh, Donald Trump's election, as we've discussed on the past two episodes of this podcast, there's a lot of uncertainty that's been injected into U.S. alliances in general, and certainly that goes for the alliance with Japan. Shinzo Abe rushed to New York after Trump's election to meet with him um, after having committed a faux pas during the campaign and only speaking with Hillary Clinton, assuming that Donald Trump would not win. So um, the, the Japanese are definitely a little bit uncertain, like many of us are, about what lies ahead. Uh, so for Carter, obviously, there's an inherent awkwardness in being Secretary of Defense for a lame duck president and pretty much having a few more weeks in office before leaving. Uh, so what can Carter really say to reassure Shinzo Abe? Well, um, as we saw during his time in Japan, uh, you know, Carter was aboard the JS Izumo, which is uh, Japan's helicopter carrier, which uh, a carrier which China actually sees as a mini aircraft carrier of sorts. So that again, you know, sends a message that the United States wants to see a more um, forward-leaning Japan taking on a bigger share of the defense burden, which is something you know that the Trump administration might be interested in. To be honest. Um, Prashant, before we move on, any notes from your end on the Japan leg of Carter's visit or, you know, more broadly on the U.S.-Japan relationship over the past four years? No, I think you, you hit the major points there. I think the revision of the defense guidelines was the major highlight. First time those were updated since 1998. Um, you know, and I think the key point to emphasize there with Japan is that uh, both the United States and Japan are involved in their own sort of domestic reorientation of policy. For the Japanese, it's the easing of decades-long restrictions on their military posture. And for the United States, it's rebalancing and refocusing its attention to the Asia-Pacific after some neglect and uh, distraction and focus on the Middle East during the Bush administration. So they've sort of played off of each other in this very sort of mutually reinforcing way. Um, and Japan is very instrumental in terms of how the United States is thinking regionally about what it does with respect to North Korea, with respect to China, with respect even to you know, policies involving uh, transnational issues like cybersecurity, terrorism, linkages with Southeast Asia and ASEAN. So the, the Japanese have really been involved in a big way in, in really everything the United States has been doing with respect to the rebalance. And I think uh, you're, you're right to point uh, to the fact that there's, there's a certain amount of awkwardness uh, with Ash Carter's visit uh, to Japan because essentially the the Japanese and the Japanese stop for most U.S. officials is seen as sort of the the easiest way to demonstrate reassurance to the Asia-Pacific more broadly that the United States is here to stay. Uh, the U.S.-Japan alliance has had that status and reputation as being sort of the bedrock uh, of stability uh, for the Asia-Pacific region. But now it, it's sort of seen as even that being very shaky. Uh, and so the fact that Carter had to go there, it, and, you know, the other thing is it, 
there's a transition now, so he can't be too frank and honest about his views. But if you look at some of the rhetoric uh, that that uh, some of the things that he said when he was there, he made it very clear, for example, that uh, this is a two-way street in the U.S.-Japan alliance. Uh, the Japanese are living up to their end of the bargain, um, contrary to what Trump has been saying about, or well, or had been saying during the campaign. He's sort of changed his tune and quietened down since being elected, but during the campaign, the charge was essentially that the Japanese were not doing their fair share, and Carter made a point to say that no, the Japanese actually do quite a significant amount, and they're very instrumental, and I think that was a really important point for him to emphasize. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah. I think I think those are all very valid points. And it's interesting that one of the things that's actually kind of gotten in train in the very final weeks, um, actually since the election, is that Japan might actually look to buy the terminal high-altitude area defense system like South Korea. Right. So that mm -hmm. could be an important uh, last-minute legacy here for Carter and Obama if that becomes finalized. The Japanese are still investigating it, um, but it looks likely. I mean, they have a few holes in their... Uh, ballistic missile defense uh, layers right now. And with North Korea, um, as you correctly pointed out, making steady progress, uh, I think that's something that we could see happen. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the the other thing that's interesting with the Japan leg uh, of the visit is, of course, the fact, you know, as you pointed out earlier, um, Japan has been uh, specifically targeted uh, by Donald Trump in terms of his his rhetoric um, and there's his rhetoric on Japan in particular unlike some of the rhetoric uh, with respect to some of the other stuff that he said on Asia with respect to China and these other countries his rhetoric on Japan uh, and protectionism goes back decades uh, and so some of the Japanese officials uh, before they had met Trump were very nervous about whether this was something that's actually going to be followed through on or not um, and on the defense side you know it's it's a very it's good that we're sort of focusing a little bit on the defense stuff today because really for DOD usually a lot of the stuff the relationship building and stuff goes on despite the political stuff that goes on with the president and some of the other bureaucracies right because the military to military relationships and exchanges continue on irrespective of that um, and so it, it's kind of a, a reassurance on the defense side but as you said the key variable is I mean how will this play out in terms of the political ramifications? So that's going to be the key. Um, but I did want to move on to to India, mm -hmm. that leg, and 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 sort of see what you had to think about that. Obviously, when he was there, um, there was the sort of meeting with uh, Narendra Modi, and obviously Carter's been taking a personal interest in the U.S.-India uh, relationship uh, with the DTTI, which which he sort of pioneered uh, personally. Um, and he, you know, sort of famously said uh, that he spent more time with uh, Manohar Parikar, the, his, his Indian counterpart, more so than uh, any other defense minister, which I think the, the Indians took as a compliment. But you could also take it as kind of a, a, a concern in the sense that, you know, how long it's taken for the U.S. and India to finalize and really get to some of this boosting of defense cooperation that we've talked about. We, you and I have both written about um, movement on some of the specific things that have been needed in terms of, you know, Lamoa and these other foundational agreements that the Indians need to move on uh, before they, they're doing that. But I think, uh, you know, interested to hear your thoughts about where U.S.-India relations are with respect to uh, the relationship more broadly, because that's obviously something where uh, if you look at East Asia and South Asia, um, the Indians are brought in as part of the rebalance, but some U.S. bureaucracies 
uh, include South Asia as part of the East Asian and the Asia Pacific, but others exclude it. Um, so there's also uh, that problem in terms of the bureaucracy. But in terms of the Pentagon, I mean, they're looking at India not just as a major player um, in East Asia individually, but they've also looked at the quadrilateral, right? Some of these relationships mm -hmm. between India and Japan, Australia, and the United States. So uh, what's your take there on what happened during the visit and the relationship more broadly? Yeah, no, I mean, so this visit itself, I think, um, you know, I think it might be more interesting to, re uh, to reflect on the forest, so to speak, instead of the trees. I mean, honestly, it was good for Parker and Carter to speak again, for Modi and Carter to speak again. Um, but in the Indian case, I mean, really to get a sense of how far things have come, I think it's worth just looking at, you know, where things really began when Obama came into office and where they are now. I mean, you know, defense com uh, commerce between the two countries has gone from one billion in 2008 to 14 billion um, over Obama's presidency, um, a fairly significant growth. And obviously, like you said, we've seen the conclusion of Lamoa, which was something that was originally proposed way back in the early 2000s under the Bush administration, even before the civil nuclear cooperation deal that really sort of helped change the way the United States was perceived politically in India. Um, and a big part also was, you know, Narendra Modi's election in 2014. I mean, you had a change of government in India. You had a more right-leaning government that didn't necessarily share the sort of non-alignment um, skepticism of American power and hegemony that the Congress before it did. So that actually really helped grease things along and accelerate a lot of things that had been in train, essentially, between the defense um, departments on both sides. Um, so, you know, uh, there's obviously a lot of specific things to point to. The DTTI, I think, is a very important initiative for the Indians um, since uh, high technology cooperation on having access to um, U.S. technologies, uh, both via Pathfinder projects and, uh, you know, more significant undertakings like aircraft carrier cooperation, which is still in the working group phase, is something that the Indians really put a lot of emphasis on and could actually, you know, uh, depending on how that plays out, that could be an important strategic factor in just determining the future stability of the Asia Pacific. For example, if India becomes the first Navy in the Asia Pacific to field a, uh, you know, a catapult uh, mm -hmm. takeoff flat top with nuclear propulsion, for example, which China still appears to be a ways away from, but uh, it might get there soon. I mean, that's a pretty important development. India could potentially project power um, into the South China Sea and the Western Pacific, which it is, identifies as areas of secondary interest in its national maritime strategy. So um, all of that, I think, you know, really um, underlines how important this relationship has become for the Indians, which I think is something that was missing before 2014. I mean, you know, also from the U.S. side, I mean, I think the biggest development this year is this bespoke status that the United States really came up with for India, uh, that of a major defense partner, which... You know, I think my reading of that is that it's something that is akin to a major non-NATO ally, just not calling it a major non-NATO ally, since India is a little bit averse to the word ally still. Um, but essentially, it, uh, you know, treats India in terms of technology exchange and cooperation um, at the same level as effectively a major U.S. non-NATO ally. And that's a pretty significant development. I think it lays the groundwork for a lot more to come. Uh, the Trump administration here, I think, is maybe less of a wild card uh, than it might be with some of the other um, Asian countries. Uh, because India isn't quite an ally and is willing to work with the United States on a more transactional basis, that actually might not end up deterring things under a Trump administration. Obviously, the big wild card, which I have to point out here, is how things go with Pakistan. Uh, and, and, you know, we talked a bit about that on the last podcast episode, but that's, again, something that we'll have to wait and see. Um, yeah. yeah. I think you're, go ahead. You're, you're right about the the 
the designation because I think the the status. I mean, you, as as you well know, I mean the the Indians are you know they they do care about you know names and statuses like that. I mean, I I recall you know under the Bush administration, when Pakistan got designated a major non-NATO ally. I mean the the, the fuss that the Indians uh, kicked up too. Um, so definitely, I think that the the status itself, even though the name might not have you know much or, or significant substance behind it, uh, will be important. But the the other thing to to note about that. Um, is the fact that, you know, you correctly pointed out, um, since it's more of a transactional sort of uh, strategic partnership more so than an alliance, um, the, the, the joke often among DOD officials is, you know, the, Indian, the U.S.-India relationship is one of the relationships that is the easiest to promote. No one's really opposed to it because it's not something where you're making these huge inroads that uh, are, are very controversial politically, right? It's a relationship that moves forward very slowly. The relationships are institutionalized, and the logic of it is very clear in terms of not just looking at India as some, some uh, a country that's important for the U.S. interests, but also in terms of broader Asia strategy and looking at what the Chinese are doing. So I, I think the, that logic there, um, of course, complicated a little bit by what we talked about previously in our last episode about Trump's business interests. There, we, we don't know what that what role that mm. would play, but really is a interesting thing to think about with the Trump administration. Yeah, there's actually no. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because you actually made me think of something that I wanted to mention. Um, so one area where I do think there's possibility for conflict, um, and this is something really the Obama administration can't really do anything about at this point, is you know Modi's sort of make in India initiative coming into conflict with Trump's more protectionist rhetoric. I mean, one of the things that's really gotten a bit of steam um, after the conclusion of India's um, off-the-shelf purchase of 36 Dassault Rafale fighters from France is the idea of the United States um, potentially setting up shop in India to uh, a license build, you know, F-16 Fighting Falcons or potentially um, F-18 Super Hornets. Um, You know, there are also other competitors in this area, possibly the Eurotype the Eurofighter Typhoon or the Saab Gripen. But, you know, these are issues that the Indians really care about. And the Make in India thing is something that I think the Modi admi- uh, the Modi government is really counting on seeing come to fruition. Um, obviously, there's a lot of barriers here, a lot of negotiations. The Indians are famously difficult to negotiate with when it comes to these sorts of arrangements. Um, part of the reason the Rafale deal was delayed for so long um, after the collapse of the you know, the MMRCA tender was the, you know, all these debates over offsets and uh, licensing and um, how much France would have to invest in India. Uh, So all sorts of, you know, all sorts of issues could potentially bog this down. But I think under the Trump administration, this could also turn into a hot button political issue at home. Uh, You know, it'd be like, why are we sending jobs away to set up factories in India to build fighters when these could be built in the United States and then exported? I mean, there's all this potential for political muddiness that I think the Indians just really don't want. Um, and that could be something to watch for in 2017 as these things continue to pick up steam. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all right. So I think we've done a pretty good uh, roundup of the Japan and India legs of Carter's visit and just those relationships broadly. Well, you know, just before moving on, I think it's interesting to also point out these two countries. I mean, you alluded to the quadrilateral, which was kind of Abe's big idea um, during his first term as prime minister. You know, he kind of wanted to see a concert of democracies uh, encircle China, uh, Australia, Japan, India, and the United States. This was kind of Abe's grand plan. Obviously, it didn't really gain any steam at time. The Australians in particular were very hesitant to anger China in that way. But obviously, things have changed. And I think it's, you know, in a sense, um, I mean, obviously, this wasn't the reason for Carter picking these two Asian countries for his final trip. But I think it is interesting to note that here you have India, Asia's largest democracy, Japan, Asia's richest democracy, and these two countries really have 
you know, a high degree of cooperation between themselves that's been accelerating since uh, 2008, in particular, when they um, expanded their defense cooperation bilaterally. So there is a possibility that, you know, if the Trump administration decides that it won't necessarily worry about the kind of things that the Obama administration really did, you know, things like freedom of navigation, the liberal international order, the global commons, norms, these things that are really hard to kind of palpably see and negotiate in a bilateral context. I think there is a possibility that, you know, Japan and India could potentially take more of a leadership role in that end. And I think that really depends on how their own bilateral cooperation evolves from this point on. But anyways, um, that's all, you know, highly speculative at this point. But, you know, I do want to talk about Carter a bit more. And, um, you know, just to see him off, Prashant, I think uh, it's worth reflecting on, you know, one of the ideas that Carter has really brought to the fore this year as sort of the framework that would have carried the pivot or the rebalance forward um, had Hillary Clinton been elected, which would have granted U.S. foreign policy a degree of comfort and familiarity and continuity that I think the administration now feels uh, highly uncertain about. So, you know, you have this concept of the principal security network, which Carter first introduced at the Shangri-La Dialogue way back in May. Um, he later revised that to be the principled and inclusive security network, uh, not to make it too much of an attempt to seem like the United States was planning on encircling China. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, but, you know, I wanted to get your sense. Um, broadly speaking, I mean, what do you think this administration is leaving the incoming administration in the Defense Department? Yeah, I think uh, the, the the broad thing to say about this administration's uh, sort of defense policy is um, uh, the, the focus, as you said, on irrespective of the challenges that the United States has to face, whether it's, you know, Russia, China, North Korea, Iranian aggression, Islamic State, um, what the United States needs to do is ensure that it develops its own capabilities, so develops its presence, its posture, and its technology uh, individually, but then also build out, as you correctly noted, this principled and inclusive security network and modernize its alliances and partnerships to ensure that it can deal with you know whatever threats that come at it. And I think that, that really is the nub. Um, and I think Carter really gets it. Um, well, let's go back to basics for a second. So what is the principal and security network? <laughs> yeah, I mean, excellent question. I mean, I, I think the the principal in, uh, inclusive security network, I think it's just it, it's a fancy term for the mirroring of what the United States had been doing way before. I mean, since 1945, essentially, the alliances and partnerships that the United States has built, mirroring that, so that security network, right, with the principles that uh, the Obama administration has increasingly been talking about. So things like freedom of navigation on the security side, um, or if you look at uh, TPP, right, economic openness and setting the standards for uh, the regional and the global order. And one of the interesting things that you've seen under the Obama administration actually is the DOD and Carter himself talking about the TPP as being, you know, as important as an aircraft carrier. You know, this is something which is an intentional policy uh, by the Obama administration to ensure that there is a whole of government approach. And we're not just, you know, DOD is not just talking about defense. The Obama administration is not just talking about like the, the diplomatic and political uh, implications of what they're doing. Everybody's got to be connected in that way. And I think Carter uh, gets that. Uh, you know, I was uh, had the pleasure to be with him on, on a flight uh, in a early April, right, when he was about to deliver a speech at uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, which where you and France were also there. Um, and when when I asked him a question uh, on the plane about, you know, 
what what really is this the sort of partnership system that the United States is building about? And I asked him specifically about the quadrilateral. Um, and essentially his response was, you know, this this really is, you know, we can keep going, you know, four, five, six, seven. Essentially it's it's an it's an opportunity for the United States to build out a, a security network with endless implications. And that's actually not just a US led uh, alliance and partnership network, as I talked about earlier. But increasingly what you're seeing the Obama administration talk about is how the United States can tap into or help facilitate partnerships that are going on in the region already. Right. right and right. one good example of that is, you know, the one thing that came out of the Shangri-La dialogue, which um, Carter touched on in his speech there, um, a lot of us in the audience, like, you know, caught that instinctively was, you know, him referencing the Sulu Sea. Mm-hmm. And the patrols, you know, the trilateral patrols between Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines. I mean, it's not often that you get a U.S. defense secretary, like, focusing on the Sulu Sea. Usually it's the South China Sea and the Indian Ocean. So uh, I think Carter gets that uh, there are all these issues that people see with the United States, that sometimes the United States tries to push this as its kind of its own network versus what the Chinese are doing. And I think the Obama administration has been very cognizant of that, and DOD has been trying to push this idea that you know this this isn't just about the United States. I mean, it's also about the United States helping facilitate cooperation that's going on in the region. Obviously, the elephant in the room in all this is you know where does China fit into this principled and inclusive security network, right? And that's been a big challenge uh, for U.S. policy, right? You'll see, you know, Carter gave a speech uh, in late September, uh, which was you know his big piece on you know we're in the third phase of the U.S. Uh, rebalance now. And China was, it was very awkward for him to speak about China. I mean, he said, you know, we welcome the rise of China, but, you know, China's being aggressive. He mentioned all these things that the United States was doing with, you know, Singapore, Japan, South Korea. And then he sort of said, well, with the Chinese, we are strengthening communications and we're trying to reduce the risk of miscalculation. (laughs) Right. And I think it was very clear that it was very difficult for him to fit that in. And I think that's a challenge for U.S. policymakers. No, absolutely. That was a that was a really helpful summary, by the way. Um, and I think it's interesting if you look at it in, uh, you know, you take a 50-year view, you look at it from a grand strategic perspective, it's essentially recasting the old hub-and-spoke system when you had a series of bilateral relationships with the United States at center, managing everything, doing so much with its own partners to really uh, decide the future of the, re- of the regional security architecture. And now, as you correctly said, the United States is encouraging, lubricating, and promoting these, uh, you know, various initiatives between countries. And that includes, you know, also things like intelligence sharing between uh, South Korea and Japan, um, increased cooperation between India and ASEAN, India and Japan. Um, Australia, obviously, is, again, a huge part of this. And, you know, what's interesting is that there's actually a lot for the incoming Trump administration to like in this. I mean, the fact that this network, I mean, you know, so the beauty of a network is that if one node is removed from a network, theoretically, the network can still function. Um, So if the United States under Trump does end up pulling back from Asia, at least on the normative questions, even if it does pursue more bilateralism, um, you know, I think what the Obama administration has left us with um, is encouraging in the sense that even if the United States decides not to play as much of a positive role in upholding the global commons, there's enough of this network that's already in, you know, it's not a super developed network at this point, but it is, you know, starting to get there. Uh, There is momentum along a range of fronts. That makes me think that, you know, even if things do get bad and there are challenges, I mean, especially things like piracy, uh, disaster relief, um, that, you know, you will see Asian countries um, and Australia and New Zealand um, and, you know, all these um, regional players starting to pick up more of 
what needs to be done in the Asia Pacific. I mean, obviously, they can't unilaterally um, or between them even replace the role that the U.S. Navy plays, for example. Uh, so, you know, I certainly hope that we'll see a forward deployed Navy, obviously, through the Trump years. Uh, but I think that there is a lot that the that the incoming administration will be glad that, uh, you know, the Obama yeah. administration has left them with here. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I'd agree with that. And I think the the couple of things to watch with respect to change under Trump. I mean, the first would be, you know, how does multilateral cooperation evolve, right? So the under the Obama administration, one of the signature achievements was engagement with ASEAN as a multilateral grouping. Mm-hmm. And you had, you know, you wrote about this and, and, and I wrote about the, the, the second one that just happened, right? The U.S. ASEAN defense ministers in formal meeting. Right. Um, you know, two of them were, were held. I mean, is Trump going to focus that much on ASEAN and, and sort of bring these 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 ministers here, not only for something like what the Obama administration did uh, in Sunnylands, but it, DOD has said that they're going to continue this, and I suspect that the Pentagon will do it. But is there going to be support from the White House in terms of making the political and strategic case for ASEAN? I, I don't know what assistance they'll get on that. And the second thing I think is like, you know, one thing where I think things are promising well, I mean, two things, but I'll say the, the first issue is um, wh- what is the uh, Trump administration's hierarchy of threats going to be, right? So is it going to be an administration that focuses mostly on uh, terrorism and, and North Korea and responding to very specific threats, or is it going to have a more sort of order-based approach uh, that the Obama administration had, which is, yeah, we we have all these threats, but we don't want to be too emphasizing too much on one or two or three of these threats because we may overreact. We want to build this big network. I don't know if uh, the Trump administration itself is going to be. I know that DOD, there's a lot of continuity there and these defense relationships have lasted, you know, for decades on their side. But again, how much support are you going to get from the administration? And the other one I would say that has reason for promise is the Philippines, right? So uh, under the Obama administration, uh, Duterte uh, was talking about, you know, reducing uh, exercises. Uh, he was talking about looking uh, to China and Russia for greater cooperation. But since Trump's uh, election, uh, Philippine officials have been saying that, oh, wow, there might be potential for a reinvigorated <laughs> relationship. And if Trump does end up making it to the ASEAN summit next year, uh, which is in the Philippines, who's hosting it. Uh, I wonder whether there might be actually a reversal in the downward trend that we're seeing in U.S.-Philippine relations. Right. No, that's a very good point. Um, and certainly that's, uh, you know, a relationship that we'll watch closely uh, as we have been yeah. throughout this year. But obviously Duterte's approach to Trump will be something that will have great consequence. Um, you know, so I do want to wrap this podcast up since we've been talking for a while. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting that I think one name that didn't really come up in this conversation was James Mattis. Uh, you know, he'll be taking over from Ash Carter. And he's actually one of the more interesting Trump appointees, in my view, since, uh, you know, he understands, I think, the value of a lot of what's already in motion. Um, and that, I think, will be valuable in uh, at least reassuring Asian states and Asian allies and partners that what the Obama administration really got rolling on the military side of the pivot and the rebalance uh, won't immediately disappear in a puff of smoke. Um, So that, I think, um, will be the encouraging message that uh, we'll end this podcast on. Um, Yeah, Prashant, uh, thanks so much for joining me. And I think, um, you know, we'll we'll be doing a lot more of these podcasts, I think, over the month leading up to the inauguration of Donald Trump. I mean, I know this is an Asia geopolitics podcast, and I I love talking about Asian states and their... uh, issues and initiatives, but obviously the United States is an important player. So I think we'll probably um, do at least one or two more of these episodes reflecting 
on what the Obama administration is leaving behind in Asia. Uh, so this will probably include a broader discussion about, obviously, the TPP, which is a big question mark right now, but leaning strongly towards um, disappearing in a puff of smoke, I guess. Uh, Trump has promised to uh, strike that down in his first day in office. So uh, that doesn't look very good for the continuity of Obama-era initiatives in Asia. But we'll also just more broadly reflect on what the last eight years have meant for the stability and the regional architecture of the Asia-Pacific. And obviously, this includes... Um, security challenges like the South China Sea, North Korea, which continue to be uh, at the top of the agenda and will be on the top of the agenda for the incoming administration. So thanks a lot for listening, and I hope you'll leave us a review and definitely subscribe if you want to listen to our future episodes. Thanks a lot for listening.